Let's just uh, commit this time uh, of going into God's word uh, to him and just pray that he would give us understanding and and ears that are willing to hear. Uh, Father, we thank you for this morning and the opportunity that we've had to worship and to praise you and to share with each other our concerns and our praises and our thankfulness and just to meet together as your people. And Lord, I just pray as we open up your word, Father, that you would speak to us through your spirit. God, would you help us to hear what you have to say through Peter's letter. And God, give us a willingness to change, uh, motivate us to live uh, the calling that you have placed upon our life. And Father, if there's anyone who doesn't know you, may the good news of Jesus be evident to them this morning. And we pray this in his name. Amen. So I was reading an article this week, and what the article was talking about was more talking about children, but how the way they live is affected by the things that they believe. And so they kind of gave a top 11 list, I don't know why they chose the number 11, but it was 11 things that kids believe that should and often impact the way they live, and made me start thinking about some of the things I believed and I was told as a kid. And, and on that list, as you probably imagine, the number one belief that children has or have that impacts the way that they live their lives is, and spoiler alert for anyone who might be here, but that there's a Santa effects and impacts the way that they live their life, uh, especially probably for like a week before Christmas. Uh, but then some of the things that, that I remember as a kid believing, and it, it affected the way that I live my life. One was that if you were to swallow a seed of a fruit, that fruit would start growing inside of you. And so I had a horrible fear. It's like a, imagine, it looks like I swallowed a watermelon seed, I guess, but... <laughs> But I had this great fear. I remember having my mom call a doctor friend of ours from the church we attended in Toronto because I had swallowed a pit. And I thought I was going to die because it was poisonous and it was going to grow uh, within me. My mom used to tell us that if we ate certain vegetables, uh, your mom and dad may have told you that it would help you see better. My mom always said it would grow hair on your chest which was fine for my two older brothers and me, but kind of lost its, its power when my sister came along, and so she stopped using that. But it was true. These things that we believed affected the way that we lived our life, and that reality carries on into our adult lives. And so if you believe that it's important, the food that you eat, you will follow through and, and, and maintain a healthy lifestyle as, as far as eating is concerned. If you think exercise is important, that will become part of your daily and, and, and weekly routine. If you believe that if you are going to be anything in life, you have to do it yourself, you'll live that way. And we could go on and on with examples, but if that's true then it should stand to reason that what we believe about the future should impact the way that we live our lives. And maybe a good question to start with is, what do you believe about the future? And maybe that's not a question that you think of very often. Maybe if you're honest, you would say, I'm not really sure what the future holds. But it is a critically important question, because what we believe about the future 
should shape the way we live our life today. And so if you believe that the future is only hopeless, full of despair and futility, it it is a self-fulfilling prophecy if you live each day with that view of the future in mind. If you believe the future is filled with meaning and hope and your future is assured, then you will live with confidence each day, having that future view. And as we work our way through the New Testament, the New Testament has a lot to teach us about the future. And it's offered to us, especially those of us who are followers of Jesus, as the basis by which we should live our life. Last week, if you were here, we were faced with a challenge. And and turn to 1 Peter while I'm talking, just so that uh, uh, you're on the uh, page and, and... Ken, have you got the Pew Bible yet? You're usually the one that tells me what page it is. But what, what, 1 Peter 4, someone could just read out the page number. 982? Okay, so 982. And last week, we were faced with this challenge. We were faced with the challenge that we are to arm ourselves with the same purpose or attitude that Jesus had. And we saw that that purpose, that attitude, was a willingness, and not just a willingness, the choice to choose suffering over sin and over silence. And we looked at a bunch of encouragements, uh, some thoughts that Peter gave us that, that help us in this regard, that thoughts that we could arm ourselves with as we strive to arm ourselves with his ultimate purpose, a willingness to suffer for what is right, obeying God's will that we'd be faithful and obedient, even if it might involve suffering. And the last point we considered uh, was found in verses 5 and 6, and the point was this. Living for Jesus brings great reward, but you may have to wait a while to realize it completely. And we looked at verses 5 and 6, and I I suggested to you that in those two verses, we find great news, but we also find a great warning. And in verse 5, we find this great warning that those who reject Jesus, those who make fun of us because we choose Jesus, those of us who call us fools because we don't do the things that we used to do, we don't live the kind of life that they live, They will stand before God in judgment. Even death won't be an escape from that judgment. But they will stand before God who doesn't miss anything, who doesn't sweep anything under the carpet. And they will be judged harshly for their sin. And so that is great, great, a great, great warning. But then we also saw the great news in verse 6, and that is that if you believe in Jesus Christ, you will live with him forever. And death our death does not end that promise. You see, there are those who reject Jesus and they think, look, those Christians, they live such a boring life. They didn't party it up like I. Now they've died. I'm going to die. It all ends up being the same in the end. So why not party now? And that's not what Peter says. No. Even death does not make the preaching and the receiving of the gospel in vain. If you accept Jesus Christ as your Savior and you put your trust in what he's done for you, you will live with him forever. 
As we move into our passage this morning, it's as if Peter has started to think about this theme of judgment and and the future that awaits those who accept Jesus and, and the future that awaits those who reject Jesus. And he makes a really bold claim. A claim that he expects will impact our behavior now. And we see that bold statement in verse 7. So you've got your Bible, and let's just start reading, and, and, and I'll, I'll make points as we go along our text for this morning. So First Peter 4, verse 7. And here's the bold statement that Peter makes. The end of all things is near. And if I'm honest, I would say that if I lived 2,000 years ago and Peter made that comment, I would agree that is a bold statement. But 2,000 years later, I'm wondering if it is more puzzling and perhaps wrong than it is bold. Because we're still here. And I'm sure I'm not the only Christian who has grown up in the church who has been told from childhood that the end is near, that Jesus is coming soon, that we are in the last days. And have really battled with my faith. How can this be true? Why hasn't Jesus come yet? What does it mean we're in the last days? 2,000 years is a long last day. What does Peter mean? What does Peter mean when he says the end is near? And our first thought is, well, the end must mean the annihilation of the world. But we're still here. And it hasn't happened. And 2,000 years have passed. So what else could Peter have meant? Well, I think the answer is found in understanding the range of meaning of the word end in the original language. It doesn't just mean the annihilation of the world. It also means the final stage of a process, including its goal and its outcome. And if we accept that as the meaning of the word end, what Peter is saying to us makes a lot of sense. With the resurrection of Jesus, we have now entered into the final stage of God's plan of redemption. The goal of that plan is being realized, but it will be consummated. It will be made complete by the return of Jesus. And so what Peter is literally saying is that the goal of all things is near. And so Peter pictures Jesus, who has died, has risen again, has ascended to the Father's right hand. He pictures Jesus sitting at the Father's right hand, waiting for the word from the throne. Go. And so when the Bible says that the end or the goal of all things is near or it's drawing near, it's talking about the suddenness, the the unexpectedness, the, the imminence of the return of Jesus. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ and that we are in this final stage of God's plan of redemption, Jesus could come back at any moment. And it's this any moment return of Jesus which should result in a way of living 
that's evident in the lives of those who have put their belief in Jesus Christ. That the fact that Jesus is coming again should shape the way that we live our lives as followers of him right now. And yet I see some problems. Because there's so much, well, let's just use the word confusion, but yeah, confusion, differing viewpoints on what actually happens in the end times. Churches have shied away from teaching it. And so I truly believe that there's a lot of people who call themselves followers of Jesus Christ who do not have a clue what the end times looks like. Like, don't you see what the problem is? It's critically important that we understand what we believe because what we believe about the future, what we believe about the return of Jesus should shape the way we live our lives now. And yet there's a lot of people who call themselves followers of Jesus and, and they really don't have an idea of what the future will look like. You see, if, it, if a conviction in the belief that Jesus is returning at any time is not what's shaping your life now, what is shaping your life? I mean, there is a lot of confusion. There is a lot of differing views. But if you can tear all those layers away, we come down to something that, that I think most would agree with. That Jesus has gone to prepare a place and then he's coming back and he's taking those who believe in him to be with him forever. And he is preparing a glorious future for us. You go to Auburn Bible Chapel. If you go on the website, press on the link that tells you about what Auburn Bible Chapel is about. And I went to it. I haven't looked at it for a long time. But just so you know, if this is where, where you call home as far as a church is concerned, and you are a little confused what you believe about end times, we've put our beliefs right out there for you to see. We believe in the imminent return of the Lord Jesus in the air to call believers from this world. And we believe in the bodily resurrection of all people. The saved will live forever with Christ, and the unsaved will live forever separated from Him in a state of eternal torment. And if that doesn't drive you to live a life that reflects your belief that Jesus could come in any moment, and yes, those who believe in Him will be with Him forever, but those who don't will be separated from Him forever. That should motivate us in the way that we live our lives and in the message that we share and in the message that we communicate by the way that we live our lives. And so the problem, one of the problems is we shy away from the message. Another problem I see is that the Bible clearly states that as followers of Jesus, we should have an expectancy of the return of Jesus. You know, let me ask you, and I ask myself these same questions. When's the last time you sat and thought about Jesus returning? How often do you think about it? How often do we talk about it? When's the last time you woke up in the morning and said, this could be the day? This could be the day that my Savior returns and I'm going to live today like there's no other day. And so we need to develop this heavenly perspective. 
that brings up another problem. It is so much easier to develop an earthly perspective. To live like the matters and the priorities of this world are much more important than the matters and priorities of the world to come. That where my focus and my attention and my devotion needs to be is on my job and on my possessions and on my hobbies and on my family and on my marriage and on my education and on my friends. And all of those are good in and of themselves. But when that becomes what life is all about for us, we've lost the plot as followers of Jesus. And so despite all the problems and, and, and all the roadblocks and all the obstacles that are thrown in our way, the message of Scripture is very clear. Because of the resurrection of Jesus, we have entered into the final stage of God's plan of redemption, and there is nothing holding back Jesus from returning again. He's just waiting for the word go from his Father. And that was the great hope of the early church. And that should be our great hope today. As I said, Jesus died. He rose again. He has gone to the Father. He's preparing a place for us. He's preparing a wonderful future for us where we will realize all the blessings, the inheritance, all of our hope when Jesus returns again. That is our great hope. Do you believe it? Do you believe it? then how is it shaping our lives? Because as we go through these verses in our text this morning, Peter says these should have a tremendous impact on our life. And he singles out four actions that he says should be evident in the life of the believer and in the life of the community of faith if we truly believe and are convinced that Jesus is returning and that we are in that final stage of God's plan of redemption. And we see the first, first one in verse 7. Peter says, the end of all things is near. And then he, there's the, probably the most important word of our text this morning, therefore. Therefore. If you really believe what we've talked about concerning Peter's bold statement that the end of all things is near. Therefore, be alert and of sober mind so that you may pray. In other words, think right so that you can pray right. I'm sure all of us have found ourselves in situations where the pressures and the stress of life, the busyness of life, have put us in a place where we feel like we're going out of our mind. You've been there before? You feel like you're going out of your mind? You can't think straight? You can't make right decisions? You do things and you say things that you wish you didn't, and you land on wrong conclusions? All the time. Thanks, James. You're with me. But it can happen spiritually as well. As we strive to live out our faith, we strive to thrive living out our faith in a, in a world that's not so friendly toward our faith. We can find ourselves in those same situations where the pressures and the opposition and the stress can leave us in a place where we feel we're going right out of our mind. We don't know what to think. We don't know what conclusions to land on. And so we say things and we do things that later we, we, we regret. And so Peter says, be alert. Literally means to be in your right mind. 
Know what you believe. And that's why I read those statements to you from the Auburn website. Go to the Auburn website and read everything that's there. Know what we believe and understand and ask questions if you don't get it. There are people here that would love to have that conversation with you. Understand and know what you believe and be sober. Literally means don't be intoxicated. And yes, don't be intoxicated with the physical stimulants. I think he's referring to spiritual stimulants as well. Materialism, idolatry, worldliness. Be in your right mind. Know what you believe and don't be intoxicated by the things of this world. What Peter's describing is a state of, uh, of, of emotional control that, that's a result of a conviction concerning the future so that we don't waver or wilt or, or land on wrong conclusions or say the things we don't want to say or do things that we wish we didn't do. But instead, we see things from God's perspective. And why is this important? Peter says it's important that we think right so that we can pray right. So that when we find ourselves in circumstances beyond our control, it draws us into prayer. And not not prayers that are like daydreams, not prayers that are uh, from surprise desperation, but prayers that, that submit to and look to the light of reality that comes from God's perspective so that we can pray for his light and his guidance and, and his direction, no, no matter how dire the circumstance might be. And so we think right so we can pray right, and that's a nice little pithy uh, title. But what does it look like? I think the greatest example is Jesus on the cross. If anyone had reason to be out of his mind, to be angry, to be concerned about himself, to be materialistic, worldly, frustrated, totally confused, say things that he wished he hadn't said, it was Jesus on the cross. But Jesus was convinced of what the future held. And so while walking to the cross and while hanging from a cross, what was he able to do? He was able to quote Scripture. He was able to show mercy to those who weren't showing mercy to him. He was able to instruct his his disciples about his mom. And he was able to pray to his father. And so in light of eternity, in light of our belief that Jesus at any moment could come again, we need to think right so that we can pray right. Then we move into verse 8. And Peter says, Above Above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multiple multitude of sins. And, and Peter's not talking about uh, a warm, fuzzy, emotional kind of love. The word love there is agape love. The sacrificial, unconditioned, other-centered love that God the Father has for us. And Peter says, have that kind of love for each other and make it deep. Probably a better word is fervent. Literally means strained. The picture that comes to mind is of a horse in full gallop or, or a sprinter stretching out to cross the finish line. 
Uh, if you're a Kevin Pillar fan or, or new Jonathan Davis, the new center fielder for, for the Toronto Blue Jays, they have this unbelievable ability to catch a ball that no one should be able to catch. And how do they do it? They stretch their body out in the air and grab onto the ball. And Peter says, that's the kind of love that we are to have for each other. A stretched out love, regardless of the cost, regardless of the hurt, regardless of how many times people let us down, we are to have a stretched out love for each other. And then Peter makes this a statement that's a little bit confusing at first reading, it says, love each other deeply because love covers over a multitude of sins. And it sounds like that could be theologically incorrect. But, but understand, Peter's not making a theological statement about God and, and how God forgives sin. Uh, he, he, he's not talking about how the church should just ignore and forget and sweep under the carpet sins. I think what Peter's focusing on are behaviors that can destroy a community. Peter's quoting a phrase that was well known to the people of the first century that finds its roots way back in Proverbs. It's kind of the flip side of what hatred can do in a community. Love covers over a multitude of sins. And I think what Peter's saying is that if someone wrongs you, you've got a few choices. You can deal with it, forgive it, forget it, cover it up, deal with it discreetly, and move on. Or you can do the other popular option, which is to drag the person who's wronged you through the mud and to nail them to a wall and make sure everybody knows the offense that person has committed and to publicly humiliate them. And Peter says, love covers over a multitude of wrongs. Wayne Grudem, in his commentary, writes, where love abounds in a fellowship of Christians, many small offenses and even some larger ones are readily overlooked and forgotten. But where love is lacking, every word is viewed with suspicion, every action is liable to misunderstanding, and conflicts abound to Satan's perverse delight. You know, here's the truth, especially when we find ourselves in a world that's not so friendly towards our faith and, and we're trying to survive and thrive and, and we're, we're trying to arm ourselves with the same purpose that Jesus had and, and, and we've got this belief that Jesus could come at any moment and, and he secured this great future for us. There is nothing more better than knowing that you're part of a loving, encouraging, supporting supportive family. And that's why if you're not part of a care group, I don't get it. I know that no matter what happens to my family or myself, a phone call to the Besterds, to the Bells, to John or Val, to the Samuses, and I've got someone who's got my back. And here's the flip side of it all. There's nothing more, oh, sorry, I've shared that with friends of mine who don't know Jesus, who don't go to church, and they take notice. They think that's a marvelous thing that we've got going. But the flip side of that is there's nothing that turns off the unbelieving world more than a church that's fighting with itself and is 
not unified and is divisive. So Peter says, in light of the future that awaits us, love each other deeply. Then we move on to verse 9. Here's a fun one. In light of eternity, offer hospitality to, no, to one another without grumbling. And I'm sure none of us have problems with hospitality, especially if we can define what hospitality looks like. But I kind of realized as I was working on this sermon that my understanding of hospitality is much closer to the definition of entertaining than it is hospitality. Hospitality in Peter's day literally meant showing kindness to strangers. And, and it was very important, especially in, in the context that they lived in. Churches were in people's homes. And if Christians were traveling, it wasn't like they had the Holiday Inn that they could stay in. And so it was important to the ministry of the early church and to the fellowship of the early church that people opened up their homes. Not, not, not just for church on Sundays, but opened it up to Christians who were traveling, evangelists that may have been coming through. And so that's a nice way to land on what Peter meant by hospitality, and probably most of us are okay with that. I'm willing to open my house if there's, you know, a guest preacher coming through. Or... But when you look at the context of what Peter's saying, it doesn't really fully fit that that's all he's saying. He keeps throwing in the phrase, one another. Love one another. Serve one another. Be hospitable to one another. It seems that Peter's focusing on the local community of faith. He's saying, open your home to those within your own local community of faith. And not just the ones you're attracted to and that you enjoy spending time with and you know you will have fun with. Peter's one another is much bigger than that. Picking and choosing does not come into Peter's mind when he tells us to be hospitable. He's saying, open your home to those who probably wouldn't be your first choice to entertain. Open, open your home to those you don't know. Open your home to those maybe you don't really like that much yet. Open your home to those in need. Open your home to those who need a roof over their head. Be hospitable to one another. And it is hard. I know my wife is laughing on the inside that I'm even talking about this. She's going to remember this date next time. She says, Brent, I think we should have so-and-so over and I'm going to grumble and complain. And she's going to say, remember what you said June 2nd or whatever date? Yes, June 2nd, 2019. It is hard. You know, I, I look back to the days we had a cottage and I probably shared this before. And it was, you know, there's parts of me that wish we still had the cottage, but one of the things I disliked the most was because we were a fairly newlywed couple with, with young kids. The people that we seemed to invite every weekend up to the cottage were young married couples that had a couple of kids. And it drove me crazy. You know, you know, by the time the summer was over, I was looking forward to not having to go up to the cottage and spend and being hospitable. Uh, so it's hard. And so Peter, just to dig it in a bit deeper, says, be hospitable to one another and do it without complaining. Stop grumbling. Yes, it's hard. It's costly. It takes up time. It takes up money. It, it causes frustration. It gives you gray hairs. 
but be hospitable anyways. Ray Pritchard, one of my favorite preachers, he's talking about this very text. He says, when you look at Scripture and you try to understand the things that you possess, what the Bible has to say is that they're not really yours. They belong to God. And so when it comes to your home, the Bible really has two purposes for why God would let you possess a home. One, yes, is a shelter. But the other is so that it would be a tool of ministry for fellowship and worship and evangelism. Nowhere do we read about our home being a monument for how well we've done in life or or a badge of our status or a, a museum for all the things that we've collected or our own castle or a place that we hide away from the world. No, it's to be a place that we open up so that we can use it for God's purposes. And so we're to be hospitable want to one another and, and doing it without grumbling. And, and what's that look like? Maybe you don't even know where to begin. Here's a suggestion. Invite someone over for a meal this week. Don't, don't start today because that's cheating because we're having a potluck. But maybe the person you're sitting with at the potluck, invite them over. Invite them over next Sunday for lunch. Be hospitable to one another. And then we get to the last one that he suggests in... Uh, verses 10 and 11, and he says, each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks, they should do so as one who speaks the very words of God. If anyone serves, they should do so with the strength God provides. Peter makes it very clear that all of us who are followers of Jesus have been given a spiritual gift. Some of us have been given more than one gift. God gives us a gift not so that we can bloat in pride or that we can use it for our own self-interest. He gifts us so that we can serve others. It's like God is making an investment in Auburn Bible Chapel. He is gifting all of his children with various gifts And my gift set is different than Daryl's gift set, which is different than Ralph's gift set. And he's designed Auburn Bible Chapel to work best with all of us using the gifts that we have, utilizing his strength, relying on him so that we can accomplish what he wants to have happen here at Auburn Bible Chapel. And no gift is too small. And this body is hurt. It suffers when just one of you refuses to use your gift. And so Peter says, use the gift that God has given to you. Because you will give account to God for what you did with the gift that he gave you. You're not going to give an account for what somebody else did with their gift. You will give a gift. Sorry, you will give account for the gift that you have received. And Peter says, God's given you a gift. And God's willing to give you the strength to exercise that gift. And so all we need to do is to be willing and to submit to his strength and his direction. And that's really a simplified definition of the Christian life. So we need to serve one another with the gifts 
that God has given us. And as we come to the end uh, of the, the verses, Peter just doesn't leave us with four random instructions. I, I think they're linked. They're not just random. But we're to think right so we can pray right. We're to love each other deeply. We're to be hospitable to one another. We're to serve one another with the gifts that we have given us. But then Peter ends the passage reminding us of our ultimate mission. That we do all those things. That we strive to thrive. That we arm ourselves with the purpose that Jesus had. That we live life in view of the future that we are convinced of. Why? So then, in all things, the Father is glorified through the Son. And if that objective is at the forefront of our mind, then nothing else really matters. Everything falls into place. Not, not that it becomes easy or that it always makes sense, but we can live with confidence knowing that the Father is glorified through the Son when we live in obedience and faithfulness to the things that God has called us to and we live in light of our conviction that Jesus Christ is coming and he could come at any moment. My prayer is that that would motivate you as you move into this week to think of the one and others that you find yourself with and to put these things into practice.